Hello, you're listening to the KPMG Private Enterprise Insights for Entrepreneurs series. I'm Ian Kyo, and today I'm talking to a man who can help your company save money and also simultaneously help save the world. Norman Crowley is the founder and chief executive of Crowley Carbon. Norman, you're very welcome. Thank you. We'll talk about the backstory in a minute, and it's an amazing entrepreneurial backstory. But let's talk about what you're up to at the moment, Crowley Carbon. It's one of the fastest growing energy businesses in the world. You might just take us through this, the size and the scale and the scope of what you're doing there. Yep. So we're, what we do is we help companies dramatically reduce the amount of energy they consume. Um, we're in 28 countries um, and we, we pretty much double in size every year. Um, and like you say, the fringe benefit is that we help reduce carbon, which is now pretty much our primary goal. Um, and we work with all the major brands, everybody from Johnson & Johnson, Pfizer, kind of you name it, basically. And is it a mixture of software or consultancy or technology? When you go into one of these companies, I mean, how does it work? Um, it's a mixture of physical equipment and now an awful lot of software. So it's part of this internet of things that everyone talks about. So we put in tiny little sensors, um, kind of almost the size of a matchbox, and we might put, you know, a thousand of them in a very large factory. And then we figure out exactly what's going on and we figure out where they're losing money. And it could be energy, but it also could be that a machine is about to break. So we have an amazing capability to know when a machine is about to fall over. Um, Or it could be that we can improve the throughput of the factory. I mean, look, this is all very much in vogue at the moment and we've Mm. seen the green wave and and sort Mm. of an awful lot of investment going towards green energies. But you've been doing this since 2010. Yeah, so... The backstory, I guess, in our previous business, the um, one of my business partners was really obsessed with climate change around 2002 when nobody else really was. And I suppose we all knew that it was in our in the back of our minds, but it was, you know, that was about it. And then when we sold the last business and we were looking for the next thing to do, we just decided not to just do something that would make a buck. Yes, make a buck, but have an impact. And there is no bigger, you know, existential crisis in the world than climate change. And it's more obvious now, as we see here today, they're burning down rainforests in Brazil and they've been weather crisis. Uh, Back in 2009, it wasn't so obvious, but it was still, you know, at a kind of core level, we knew that we couldn't keep doing what we were doing. Um Talk to me about electric cars, because this is another offshoot of your business. I suppose your business isn't just one thing, it's many. You're, yeah. you're diversified. Yeah, we are. Yeah, yeah. So we break it into impact, educate and inspire. So impact is the core business, Crowley Carbon, Clarity, our software. And that's its mission is to every month take a power plant offline around the world. So that could be like our guys just finished a project in Abu Dhabi that took 100 megawatts out of a plant and that only took them six weeks. So if you do four of those, you've just made money point disappear. Wow. Yeah. And so it's a weird business in that sense because a lot of the time there isn't something physical to see like a wind turbine or a bunch of solar panels. It's just you're making things disappear and making usage disappear. Um, But that impact is profound because you don't need to manufacture anything mainly to do that. You just need insights, technology. And that message is getting out there very dramatically now um, with lots more and more big companies all the time wanting to work with us. 
So that's impact. It's very clear what it does. It's a for-profit business. Um, and then we have educate. So I guess, what now, three years ago, we set up a thing called Cool Planet Experience, which is the first interactive experience to educate people about climate change. And the reason we did that was because we felt that the everyday person was not being listened to. On one hand, you have Trump or Danny Healy Ray, who just are climate deniers, don't give a damn about the science, just like this doesn't exist. And you go, but, 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 there's loads of proof. And they go, no, no, doesn't exist. And then on the other side, and people don't think about this as much, you have the kind of dyed-in-the-wool green person, right, who you know, believes we shouldn't be taking foreign holidays, we shouldn't be eating meat, you know, all of that kind of thing. And both of those people alienate 99% of the population. And so what the 99% of the population do is they sit in the middle and they don't know what to do. And we felt that in in at the time, 2016, that there was enough technology out there to be able to explain to people what to do. And the other part of that was what we were asking people to do to save the world for the last 40 years was compromise. We were basically saying, hey, you you should use this washing powder. It's more expensive and it doesn't quite work, but, you know, you'll feel better if you use it. You won't have clean clothes, but you'll feel better. Or you should drive this electric car. You won't be able to get, go that far and you'll look like Mr. Bean, but hey. And it won't even go fast for you. Yeah. And then... You should be a vegan, you'll be much more entertaining at dinner parties. And so what we felt at the time was that there were all these technologies that didn't have you compromise, which is where the phrase cool planet came from. So you can be cool, you can live a better life, um, you can enjoy it a lot more. And there are things like electric cars that do that. So that's our educate piece. And the first centre was open um, by Richard Branson, um, in January 18, and it's been a complete sellout in Dublin, in Powers Court House. Um, and then now over the next five years, we're going to open 20 more of these around the world. Yeah. Wow. So that was Cool Planet Experience. And then the people, not us, the people then inspired us to do other things around that. Like people wanted to volunteer all around the country. So we created Cool Planet Champions with the EPA. And we have 70 Cool Planet Champions who volunteer all the time and give out this much more positive, simple message. Um, and then we have Cool Communities, which is where towns get involved. Um, we have Cool Planet Convince, where we go to companies like KPMG, actually, and Citibank and people like that. And they green their companies in a very kind of positive and fun way. And we educate them. So that's... So that's two, that's two legs of the stool. There's a... Like Cool, like cool Planet planet itself now has about five different legs. We're working with governments on education curriculums. Um, we're working with schools. So it's and that isn't just driven by the team in Cool Planet and they're a very, very good team. But it's driven by people. People come to them and say, I want to know, I want to help. This is the skills that I have. And what we do is we mix their skills with a kind of commercial reality too, right? So it's a foundation, that side of our business. But at the same time, we're there going, well, OK, who's going to pay for this? How is it going to work? And that's important because you have to make these things sustainable. If there's no money and at all, it's all free all the time, then there's no way of keeping it going. Yeah. yeah. And then so if you go back then to impact Crowley Carbon, take equip, you know, take energy out fast. Um, then you look at Cool Planet, you think about educate. Uh, then the final bit is inspire. 
And the reason you need to inspire is because um, there has been 40 years of, oh, look, don't mention sustainability to me. I'm going to end up in some kind of hippie shed somewhere with a compost toilet, right? And people don't want that. People want progress, right? And so you have to shock them to get them to recognize that we are now not in some kind of hippie, sustainable green thing, but this is modern technology. This is amazing. This is cool. And one of the ways that we thought about doing that is, you know, people think about cars and cars can be very inspiring. So suppose we took a really old car, but a very beautiful car. Um, And the thing about old and beautiful cars is they're very unreliable. And suppose we took that car and we made it into a supercar. And so what Electrify does is it does two things. One is it takes very old cars, um, anything from a 1980 Fiat 500 from Italy through to a 1965 Ferrari, um, and we convert those to electric. Uh, And that business is based in Wales at the moment, although we are building a plant in Dublin. Um, And it's... um, its role, like it's completely sold out all the time. So people just want to do this, want to do this. And then the other part of Electrify is to make extremely high-end, beautiful cars. So these cars will sell for anywhere in excess of a million euros, in some cases in excess of two million euros. Wow, wow. Amazing work and amazing body of work all across one area. I want to talk about your backstory as well, because mm-hmm. it's, it's mm-hmm. remarkably interesting. You started off at 15 and were retired for the first time by 28. Yeah. Uh, how, did you always have that entrepreneurial bug? And, and you, you started with a welding business, I think. Yeah, yeah. Like, I, I was born in 1970. And so growing up in Ireland in the, in the 70s and 80s, it was a very poor place. It was kind of as well a backward thinking place. So, you, you know, we were fed a dose of uh, Dallas and US cop shows on, on RTE. And so you were watching this kind of quite liberal world um, and this kind of rich world in a way. And yet we were living in quite a poor world where things were insular and, and not expansive, you know. And um, and so, and I guess I always wanted to break out of that. And the first thing you need if you're going to break out is money. And my dad, when I was like, 14 taught me how to weld and then the entrepreneurial bug was okay how do we break out well you meet you know you do work how what work can you do well I can weld and so then we set up a a welding business and we were doing kind of everything and anything we were kind of doing up cars we were welding you name it Um, and that was the start of the kind of entrepreneurial bug you got to learn how to deal with customers you got to learn how to get paid you got to learn how to do a good job and also you learn the thing that is very important sadly with entrepreneurs you get to have your heart broken by customers and by expectations and by mistakes Um, so we morphed that business uh, into a software and technology company because obviously it's the obvious thing to do take welding and go into software (laughs) yeah well actually they're all engineering right so (laughs) one is just your hands are a bit cleaner with one than they are with the other but it is all engineering and the fundamentals are the same Um, and so by um, so by what by 1997 we were a full bore computer company software company we had 170 people around the world and we had a bunch of big clients in Ireland and around about 1997 we saw the internet and I guess 
the thing that we're quite good at is seeing the next wave. And so when we saw the internet, which was at the time a kind of crappy dial-up, um, 2400 baud, very, very slow system. But we could see the opportunity of the connectivity of it. So from 97 to 99, we morphed again from a hardware computer company into a internet company. And uh, so then we were very lucky that in 1999, a lot of telecoms companies were floating. And th- this is Ebion at the time. This is Ebion. So yeah. it morphed from a thing called Trinity Commerce. Actually, it was, a, it was a company called Trinity Commerce when we were running it. And we sold it. So what happened was lots of telecoms companies floating. They all needed an internet story. So they would go to the market and the market would say, well, you're a boring fixed line telecoms company. You need an internet story. And we were the big internet story in Ireland. Um, and so... ESAT and Aircom both approached us very quickly because they were both floating and they both wanted that story. So within three or four months, we'd sold the company. Um, so at 28, I retired, basically. And um, How long did the retirement last, Norman? It lasted about eight weeks. Um, cause but was it a conscious decision at the time? You had said, I'm done. Well, from the time I was about 20, I would tell anyone who'd listen that I was going to retire by the time I was 30. And I had no idea I was going to retire. And there were many times with Trinity Commerce that where there was no money and we were very close to going bust and there was certainly no chance of retiring. But it's an interesting story about if you keep putting it out there, the world is a funny kind of way of, of getting you the answer. And so so yeah, at 28 I retired. And then there's a valuable lesson in that which is it wasn't, I then learned that actually life was about the work. It wasn't about the money. The money is important and, and we all have to make money, but uh, it was really more about the work, you know. And uh, So you went back at it? Went back at it. Uh, and so then looking for the next thing. And then you were asking about Ebion. So when Aircom bought the business, they changed the name of it to Ebion. Um, because it was more trendy. And then it went spectacularly bust, actually, about... 18 months later and uh, like every other internet company at the time Were you uh, still actively involved with I it was at on that time? Board. Yeah, I was on board when it went and it was a valuable lesson one of many I always say that some lessons are cheap and some lessons are expensive and um, that was an expensive lesson and it was just trying to grow too quickly in a time when every company was trying to grow too quickly and then of course, the dot bomb happened in 2000 and killed everything in its sight, a bit like the, um, you know, the global recession in, in 2008. And um, and Ebion was one of the casualties. And so, but I knew a lot of that team and I had built a lot of that team and I knew they were really good. So we set up the next business inspired without any business plan or without any idea about what we were going to do, basically. We just had a really good team. And, uh, and you know, give me a good team any day of the week, right? <laughs> and so, and then a friend of mine worked with William Hill uh, in the UK and I met him one day and I was looking at the machines in the betting shops and there were these kind of really old fruit machines and I was kind of saying, who plays this rubbish, you know? And, uh, and he was saying, well, it's the biggest income generator in the shop and... I was saying to him, how come you don't have a digital one that's broadband connected? And then an idea goes off in your head. Yeah. And he said, if you're so clever, why don't you build us one? But he said, nobody's going to play it. And it didn't make any sense to us because if you went to Vegas, like people played video machines all the time. So why wouldn't they play them in London? 
and um, so we built the first machine it was rubbish built the second machine it was slightly less rubbish and by the time we built the third machine it was taking four times more money than anything else in the market uh, and, and this, yeah. this this was inspired gaming I think at its peak it had 2,500 staff yeah. revenues yeah, 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 yeah. of 500 million dollars yeah, yeah, yeah. and you were almost about to sell it to the Icelandic yeah, uh, an Icelandic group hedge fund. Yeah. An Icelandic hedge fund for a cool yeah. billion. Yeah. And then Iceland went bust. I- Iceland and the rest of the world. And the rest actually, of the world. Yeah, went bust, yeah. but Iceland in particular. And at the time, it was a crazy time. Like, and I, you know, Icelandic hedge funds owned everything from American Airlines to yeah. Bang & Olufsen to House of Fraser. And so they were buying up like crazy. And uh, so they owned a chunk of us and then they wanted to buy the rest. So, and famously, we were two hours from closing the deal when the music stopped. And um, So what, what did you do? What? Well, we cried a lot. And then we, um, so that was coming up to Christmas. And then after Christmas, you know, we had to rebuild um, for about six months, which was really tough because everyone has an expectation of a big win and then you don't get it. And there were a lot of headwinds then because it was 2008. And spending was dropping, so um, and the company was going through tough times. But you know, we just ground it out basically, and we won a bid with the Italian government for national lottery machines, and we won the same in Brazil. And so by July of of two thousand and eight, we were kind of back on top. And um, and then I like my life at the time was get up on a Monday morning in Dublin, say goodbye to the family, go to London. Um, our offices were in London fly back on a Thursday night and then every third week fly to Hong Kong do eight cities from Hong Kong uh, and then every 12th week go to Melbourne we had an office there and so your life was just on an airplane all the time and um, and so I just woke up one morning in late 2008 and I couldn't feel my hand actually and um, and first doctors thought it was something quite serious but it turned out just to be kind of extreme stress from you know, we had been battling from 2001 to then, you know, and you don't go from zero to a half a billion business without, um, you know, without doing some damage. And um, and you need a very... An immense sacrifice, you know. Yeah, and you need a f- very supportive family and who believe and all of that, you know, and I was lucky enough to have that. And... Um, and so then I went to my business partner and I just said, I'm out of here. And so we did a sale, took it off the market. At the time, the public markets were choppy anyway. So we did a management buyout where my business partner and a private equity company bought it. And we sold it for about a half a billion bucks. So not a bad result. Not a bad result. Not a bad result. It's an amazing story. Um, yeah. What What does the future hold for you? I mean, I read somewhere that you have 30 separate business ideas uh-huh. Uh, will you ever get around to them or will you keep on doing bolt-ons? To, because if, uh, yeah. like you've, you've built businesses, you've sold them, you've yeah. built, you've sold. Is that yeah. the plan with this one? Uh, no. So this one we're going to keep. Um, so I guess the big shift this time is the move towards purpose, right? So what we've learned over the years is that if it's just all about profit, it gets a little bit soulless after a while, you know, and uh, it's just about the next thing you can acquire and what is the next thing you can acquire. Um, so somewhere along the line, we grew a conscience and um, and so and also we look at the world of climate change and we worry, you know, I literally lost sleep last night over burning forests in Brazil, right? Because this is if you have children or you're thinking about having children or you have grandchildren, then we are now subjecting them to a life 
that is not the life that we had. And um, to me, that is one of the most important things we should worry about, and if not the most important. And, you know, that's what's important. And in order to make our growth sustainable, we have to make money. But the money is purely a function of using that then to fund more expansion. Well, that's a a positive note. We wish you the very best for it. Norm McCready, thank you very much for joining me here today. Thank you.